0: The Supreme Court has said, release those hounds. Trump's tax returns have now been turned over to a New York grand jury. Now, I have to admit, I have never before ever cared about the contents of any president's tax returns. Until now. Yeah, I'm a bit curious. People with egos the size of the Titanic don't fight this hard to keep people from knowing he is a bazillionaire. Also in the news, My Pillow CEO Mike Lindell was sued by Dominion Voting Systems over comments he made that Dominion was in cahoots with Hitler, Stalin, and Beelzebub, the prince of all demons, in trying to steal the recent election. We will unpack all of these issues, plus I interview Joe Patrice, the senior editor of Above the Law, all in this week's debriefing of the law. I am really excited about today's guest to Debriefing the Law. Uh, today I have Joe Patrice. Did I, did I pronounce your name correctly? You sure did. Because I am horrible at pronouncing names. A Part of it is my own name. If, if you saw my name, how would you pronounce my name? Uh, I'd probably go Oster. Is that? Okay. Yeah? That's, right. that's, that's not bad. All right. Uh, a lot, most people say Joel Osteen. Oh, right. uh, I think I'm we'll some see, kind of pastor. How, yeah. <laughs> like, no, I look nothing like Joel Osteen. But I then had a case in El Paso and I went there and uh, they they said, Oh, oh, Mr. Howell, Great to meet you, Mr. Howell." It's like, Who, wow. who's Hoel? Oh, that's me. I guess that's another way to pronounce my name. I had no idea. But uh, I, I'm so glad that you uh, agreed to be on uh, today's podcast so I could of talk course. to you because you are very interesting, kind of living the life. But first of all, I got to know. So you're the editor, senior editor of Above the Law. We're going to get to all that here in just a bit. But where are you stationed from today? As we're talking, I just have to know,
1: where are you? I am coming for, to you from the Above the Law remote office uh, in slightly up the Hudson River, New York, uh, because we don't go to our regular office anymore. Uh, but normally we, <laughs> That's right. normally we would be coming to you from uh, just north of Soho in New York City. But uh, today it's... It's up by West Point. So, so what is life like living in New York City? Because
0: I got to tell you, I have no clue. I'm from the Midwest. I'm uh, mm-hmm. from Kansas City, and I, I I've had cases up in New York City. And I had my first case was in 2001, just a couple of weeks after 9/11. Yeah, and I, I get off the plane, and my client met me there at the um, uh, at the gate, and um, and he had, he had a case there in federal court, and he, when he saw me, he said. Oh, we're screwed. Now, I don't think "screwed" is the actual word that he used, but I look so Midwestern. He said that you are going to get eaten alive by these New York attorneys. So I, I'm just curious, what is life like there, in, living in New York
1: City? So I'm, uh, I'm also I'm from all over, but not necessarily New York. Uh, I also was I was grew up in Iowa and Wisconsin, and then uh, ultimately I moved out to Oregon, and that's where I went to like high school and college and stuff. So I okay. was from a lot of places, none of which were nearly as as imposing as new york but i right. came here for law school and uh yeah it's great i feel i a maxim that i always use with people is it's the opposite of that old phrase it's a nice place to visit but i wouldn't want to live here uh, i feel <laughs> right, like it's a, right. it is a fantastic place to live and i don't know so i would want to visit there uh because really all, this, all the stuff that makes it great is stuff you will never find in the first even week two weeks of being there so you really have to Embrace the idea that you're living there, and that's when you start finding all the gems that make it um, the city that is so fantastic. Uh, and so I understand why anybody who doesn't commit to spending several months there comes away intimidated by it, finding it finding it, you know, shallow and not liking. It. But it, it's really vibrant, and great, but only if you hunker down and decide you're going to throw yourself into
0: it for a while. Oh, I, I love visiting New York City. I mean, I, I am a pepperoni pizza kind of person. My client took me to a, a pizza by the slice place, nice. and we went there, and he folded it in half and tipped it, and the grease ran off. I'm thinking, oh, yeah. okay, this this is a wonderful pizza here. I love this place. Uh, but my probably my worst experience there in New York City was we were at Times Square doing something. I forget wherever he works. He took me all over the place, and I just decided to walk back to my hotel But it was really late at night. I mean, you New Yorkers, you have no idea how the clock works. He actually went to pick me up for dinner, and he showed up at 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, dude, I'm going to bed. This is not (laughs) time to go out to dinner. This is time to go to bed. But after we got done, it was like, I don't know, one or two in the morning. I just walked back to my hotel, and there were these rats in the street. As big as my dog. Yeah. And as I approached the rat, the rat did not flee. I'm like, dude, you're supposed to flee now. What he wasn't even as scared of me. So yeah, that's my experience of New York City. But <laughs> wonderful city. Uh, but all right. So you work for uh Above the Law. Yeah. Now before we get there though, I'm always fascinated about about one's journey. Yeah. What what caused you to, or led you to get to this point in your life when you were little? Did you always dream of being a, a lawyer? Uh, you know, when did you first say, yes, I, I want to go. Pr- I want to be a lawyer when I
1: grow up. So, OK, so the, arguably I never did. But uh, the, so my first impulse was <laughs> lost. The last part. Yeah. Right. So I was <laughs> uh, I was at Oregon, uh, University of Oregon, and I was taking uh poli sci classes. That was my one of my majors. And I there was a professor who was there uh, at the time and she had just joined the faculty and she had a law degree and was teaching a bunch of legal classes and I needed more credits. And so I started taking a bunch of these law classes. I found I had an aptitude for it. I really liked it. Uh, She then encouraged me to go to law school. I said no. And then I realized I came to a point where I realized I had no marketable skills, uh, and therefore decided it was best <laughs> to probably go into uh into something that would deliver those. So I decided I would talk to her and we worked out that I would go to law school. Uh took uh, yeah, I mean it's uh there the movie Gross Point Blank about the with John Cusack, where he's a hitman. Right, right. I always quote that one when I think about my journey into law where he explain he's explaining how he became a hitman. He's like, I ran right, away right. from home. I took this test. It said I was good at it. So that's why I did it. That's really how I ended up in law. <laughs> I took the LSAT. It said I was going to be good at it. So I went uh, okay. to school, uh, came out here to, for school, went to NYU. Then, you know, that funnels you now in. You went
0: from one coast in Eugene, yeah. Oregon, all the way to the other.
1: Wow, that's that's interesting. Yeah, so jumped all the way over here. It, it filled out, you know, I'd had the Midwest childhood, the West Coast. It right. you know, filled out my, 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 my death. <laughs> Uh, so right, I, came out, I came out here. Uh, that funnels you pretty easily into big corporate firms out, out in New York. Uh, that's the easiest place to get a job when you go to NYU. So I did uh, and worked at Cleveland. So
0: what was your yep. approach there then uh, when you wanted to get a job? Did you just say, hey, I'm going to put my name in every uh, hat that comes by for interviews? Or did you say, I want
1: to be a, a transactional lawyer? How did you approach the getting a job part? So, okay, well, that's a that's a great question because it's one of the things that I actually – I find really bad about uh, how law schools train people, because I, so I'm one of those folks. I did not have any family members who had been lawyers right. ever, so I had no frame of reference, uh, and therefore I fell into litigation because that was what I understood. Uh, going, to co- going to court, going to court—that's what lawyers do. And you right. know, I, I had some, I had some skill at it, but I really always wonder if I might still be a lawyer today if I had known that, you know a commercial real estate was a thing that could be done. Uh, I don't, I didn't know any (laughs) of these other options. So I went into litigation and, but as far as getting a job, uh, the nice thing about going to a place like NYU is it really is like after you've grown up a little bit in college, you go to law school at a place like that, and they can treat you like a toddler again. At no point did I ever worry <laughs> about jobs. They just lined me up with interviews, and I talked to people, and then I got the, like. that. They Their career services group is so aggressive that right. you don't really ever have to think about how to get a job, which I know is the opposite of the general path for people going to law school, because we have tons of law school graduates and not nearly enough jobs out there for them all to fill all the time. But at NYU, you they take you by the hand, and you just get, you get, you know, you you have a little limited whether you want to be litigation or whatever, and then they plop you into the firm you're going to go to. So I did that, uh, and for a few years, then I moved to a boutique firm and did that for another eight years, doing white collar okay. defense mostly.
0: Ah, all right. Um, and now you hear the horror stories about the New York lawyer experience about. Mm-hmm the billable hours, the, you go to work, you leave your house for the trains They're at seven in the morning, you don't get back till 11 o'clock at night. Uh, you're, you're married to the firm. Is any of that reality? how did that work for you? Especially if you're a litigator, right. I, I imagine a litigator's calendar or,
1: or work day is, is very burdensome. Yeah. The, well, the, that the, at Cleary, it what definitely was. Uh, I remember my first day as a summer associate, and remember this is the this is the recruiting part where they're trying to be nice to you. Uh, My first day as a summer, I left at 5. AM. There was a motion that like came in and I got staffed on it. And so we left at five in the morning for writing this emergency motion. So that was how my coaxing process started. Uh, But then yeah, more or less, it was okay. I mean, you'd usually leave at about nine or 10 ish in a good day. uh, If you're like involved in a trial or whatever, I mean, I, during trial, I, I remember I went in on Thursday and would leave Sunday morning kind of situations. Uh, no way. Yeah, it, it was bad. And you you kind of struggle through. You nap at your desk whilst the partner is turning around the document. That sort of stuff definitely happened. Uh, once I moved to a wow. boutique firm, it was not nearly as bad. I don't think that – I think the latest I ever left the boutique was midnight. But that was uh, <laughs> that was a better experience. <laughs> Wow, I've never seen a firm at midnight. That oh, is wow. That it's, is late. Yeah, no, it, 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 and 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 I would say I normally would leave a boutique firm in New York, you, even doing high level work. You still are leaving it. 7.38 probably is more likely. Really? Uh, but, you and know. it's still a two-hour trip home, right? At least that's what I've he- I've heard about New York City. It depends on where you're going. Uh, I always lived – actually, my first firm, I lived within walking distance. So I was home okay. yeah, 10 minutes tops. Uh, the second firm I worked at, uh, the furthest away I ever was was when I was in Brooklyn. I was probably 35, 40 minutes. It wasn't really all that bad. Okay. Uh, it, once you try to get outside of the city – Uh, and God help you if you try to drive somewhere. Uh, but if you're, as long as you're on the trains, you, you're pretty good. Okay. All right. Yeah. It it sounds like you are confirming some of my
0: life's choices. So I do appreciate (laughs) that. It's a great place to visit. I'm probably not going to agree with you on the live. I, I remember one time I went to New York city and I was walking, I don't even know where I was, but somewhere downtown Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I smell this weird smell. Yeah, It's like that, the smell is I recognize it. It's familiar to me. Apparently, there was some church there that actually had a lawn, and they were cutting their lawn. That smelled so out of place there in New York City. <laughs> that freshly cut grass—it just stuck out like a. That's unusual, yeah. uh, in New York City. But no, definitely, it, it's all good. So I am. Um, uh, I want to get to the current events that's going on mm-hmm. in the world a lot. But first of all, I want to get to know uh, who you are and and what kind of makes you tick, if you will. Oh, oh yeah. before I get there, I, I forgot to mention this. So I interact with lawyers on a, on a regular basis, and uh, I, I teach CLEs, and I, I, I meet with them. I talk to them, find out what's what got, got them ticking. And this is my observation, and I want to get your opinion on this. Okay. But this is my observation that most lawyers' dream job, I mean, their ultimate goal in their career is one day if they play all of their cards right – they could be a former lawyer. I mean, that's, they want to be a former. That's like the number one career aspiration for most lawyers. Would you agree with that? Well, what's your observation?
1: Well, it's certainly it's certainly a job that I, I feel like it's a winnowing process. I think there are definitely true believers whose only goal is to keep billing and keep uh, build the biggest book in the world. Uh, but I think right. a, the vast majority of lawyers don't necessarily want to go there. And I think uh, like a lot of my peers always were trying to figure out their. Exit strategy. And it was usually not an exit strategy, but a shift. Uh, I'm going to move in house. I'm going to do this other thing. Uh, But usually still staying in the legal world. Actually, a lot of them uh, around here, uh, a lot of the folks that I worked with and went to law school with, ultimately ended up going to legal research places, whether they're uh, working at LexisNexis or Bloomberg or something like that. Uh, That was a career path where they could still use their degree, but not really be a lawyer. Uh, But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, the the tech space has drawn a lot of people like the legal tech world. I know folks who've gone down that road because there's money in it and some a place for people who know how law works to be a little bit more creative about building stuff to help lawyers rather than be one themselves. So, yeah, it's interesting.
0: So why did you make the switch? Because obviously now, you, you're you a litigator, and from mm-hmm. what I can tell from your resume, you work for these, these big law firms, and I kind of had a similar experience where I wanted to pay back school loans, so I just went to whoever paid me the most uh, money right out of, of college or, or law school. Uh, and But at a certain point, then you you make that shift and say, well, what, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. What do I want to do? Why did you make the switch? Because now you are a senior editor mm-hmm. uh, of, at Above the Law, uh, writing hilarious stories on the law have you have a great podcast why did you make the
1: switch so i it's exactly what you were saying so i uh it happened for me a quirk of timing so right before the you know the great recession economic pressure i actually paid off i, I hit the button to pay the last bit of my student loans and i was like okay. I, i'm i'm free And after a couple of months, I was there and our firm had, you know, we were a small firm, one of those situations where they hire somebody when there's a new office available. Somebody leaves for the U.S. attorney's office, which is where most of the people I worked with would go to, and there'd be a new office. So we got to hire somebody to fill that one office. And they, (laughs) you know, there's peer firms that are always looking. So they had a practice, like a lot of places do, of giving out more offers than they had openings. Because, you know, we usually get about a 25% acceptance rate. So they gave out four offers for this one one job. And I said, wait a minute, why'd you do that? And they're like, well, you know, other people, uh, our peers are looking, and usually we get about 25%. And I was like, they're all gonna come because I knew that the economy was <laughs> collapsing, uh, which right. the legal world didn't necessarily realize. So they all said yes. And I, at that point said, you know what? I paid off my loans. I can help out my firm by leaving. Uh, And that was the first time I'd ever thought about leaving. I was like, oh, you know, I can actually help folks. And I'd never thought about it. And some friends of mine had gone into doing freelance writing stuff. I thought they lived a very interesting life. They would meet up in the day and have these great days out in the sun uh, writing stuff. And I said, you know, that's what I want to do next summer. So, I took, I, you know, I told my firm I was leaving and I said, I'm now joining those ranks. And then everybody I knew promptly got a real office job. So I was alone. Uh, but I started freelance writing, uh, including for Above the Law and a bunch of other places. And ultimately, Above the Law wanted a full-time person and I jumped on board.
0: Sounds, you know, that you sound very similar to John Marshall, uh, you know, the some consider the greatest Supreme Court Chief Justice. Uh, he was offered the position of being the Chief Justice I, I was 1800, maybe 1801. And he took it, he actually was the second choice, but he took that job because it would give him more time to write about his hero, George Washington. So we thought, <laughs> hey, this is a good side gig. My main gig is I want to write about George Washington. So he took the job as being the Chief Justice uh, of the Supreme Court. But um, he, but you wanted to write, which is very, I mean, that is what lawyers do, yeah. right? I mean, it's, that's not much of a transition when it comes to your skill set.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I was a uh, my approach to litigation in a lot of ways going into criminal defense was the worst possible move for me uh, as far as my skill set, because my skill set as a litigator had always been I'm the person who likes sitting down researching something for a really long time and then writing the brief. And ultimately, uh, when you get into the white collar world, it's so much more negotiating with the government and looking over documents and having arguments about what these various exhibits mean and so on. And it was deposition, so so on. And I never really was doing that kind of appellate work that I found most interesting. And so, right, right. you know, I, a lot of my stuff wasn't really, work I didn't have that creative outlet that I felt like I probably wanted. Uh, and so moving on to this sort of a job, even though it is not law, uh, it does allow me to use my legal Education and get that creativity and writing every day that I've always kind of craved.
0: So you live the blessed life. I, I kind of feel like in the way I do too, as well. Where we're, we're doing what we want to do, and it—it it sometimes, at least to me, it, it's a, it amazes me that the lights are still on and somehow <laughs> the mortgage is still paid. I have no idea how that's the case, but yeah, I mean, you follow your passions in life and you do what you want to do because. Last I checked, this is the only one that we are given, and so you might as well do what you want. Yeah. Well, I I found I had this test here, this little quiz that helps me get to know the people that I'm talking to. So I've never met you before. Cool. So this quiz is going to help me get to know you a little bit better. So I think there's only like four or five questions here. I just want to see how you do on this. All right. Are you ready for this? Sure. All right. Question number one. What was Colonel Jessup's response when Lieutenant Caffey said, I want the
1: truth? I believe it is, it was, it, do I have to answer in the form of a question? Uh, what is, <laughs> uh, you can't handle the truth. See, now I know you're
0: old. Uh, I, that <laughs> right. is good. I <laughs> I did this big called Lamborghini lawyer. I went driving through town here in a Lamborghini. It's not mine, it's my friends. I borrowed my friends' Lamborghini. Mm-hmm. And I went driving through drive-throughs just for the shock value of mm-hmm. you normally don't see a Lamborghini in a the drive-thru. Then I would ask questions to the other person about law. And we, you know, just get the again the whole shock value. And I, I would ask them this question. And uh, hey, what was the response to um, you know, I want the truth? I learned that half the people out there don't know the answer to that wow. question. And it, it was always the younger group, and then and like my favorite response was "and nothing but the truth" <laughs> so stuff like that. But mm. hey, at least I know you're for, you're closer to my generation, right? How about this one? Okay, what did Judge Chamberlain Holler ask Vinnie Gambini when Gambini asked a witness, "Is it possible that the
1: two utes dot dot dot"? I believe what I, was I believe the judge's immediate response was was just to repeat it back, something like. Do you say Utes or something like that? Um, and then, that's, yeah, that, that, that's right. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, I was like, I can't remember exactly what he said, but obviously, I remember the uh, the exchange.
0: Yes, Ute. What is a Ute? Ute? Now, I figure that you, being from New York, at least not from New York, but you live in New York, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit more, uh, closer, uh, you, you experience this. But if
1: you ever have a hard time, you don't talk like a New Yorker yet. Yeah, is that no, something you're working on? It, you know, it's interesting. The, that accent is, it, there are places it exists, but it is, it is becoming increasingly limited pockets of places where that exists. Okay. So there, there's some boroughs where you can start identifying accents, but it is in particular in like the manhattan area you're not gonna run into accents all that much
0: Wow. Yeah. I, I interviewed this lady last week uh, on for the podcast, and uh, she was from um, uh, Boston. Okay. And she sounded nothing like a Bostonian. And so I was, like, shocked. I assumed she was a transplant. I even said, well, you must have just moved there within the last couple of years. She was no, I'm a, I'm a lifer here. And she um, – yeah, that was amazing. All right. Now, this one I really am going to get to know you with. Uh, so here's the question here. In airplane, what was the pilot's
1: response when asked, surely you can't be serious? Well – Okay. So I don't think it was the pilot's response. I believe it was the doctor's response because it was Leslie Nielsen who said, I am serious and don't call me Shirley. Or stop calling me Shirley, I think he says.
0: Wow. Yeah. You nailed it. And, yeah. and you called the question. Is, you are an airplane connoisseur. Yeah. If, if you like those kind of movies, then you're, you're my kind of guy. And so, all right, well, that does tell me a little bit about your personality. I, I don't know what, but hey, I'll, I'll analyze the the data later. Uh, I have a couple more questions here. And this is a slightly different game. This is called Real or Fake. Now, I want to give you uh, some a quick synopsis of a loss of, of a case. Okay. And I have a legal situation. And I want you to tell me, is this a real legal situation Ooh. or did I just make this up and this was just on some kind of movie or I dreamt about it late at night? Nice. All right, you ready? Yes. All right. A lawyer during closing arguments of an arson case decided to catch his pants on fire to convince the jury that fires just happen
1: spontaneously. So, so you get the idea there? Yes. And I am, I am pretty sure that that's true. I I that absolutely. I feel like I I remember reading that when it happened you might have wrote about it (laughs) right yeah um,
0: (laughs) yes actually in the arson case a second degree arson where the issue was hey look you um uh you you deliberately set this thing on fire his defense was no fires just happened uh spontaneously like out of thin air and so to help prove his point during closing argument he had a lighter in his pocket that he was flicking and his pants caught on fire during his closing arguments and uh I don't even know what you can do with that. Um, liar, liar, pants on fire. I mean, where would you actually go with right. that scenario? But it, it actually did happen. So, all right, good. One for one. How about this one? A lawyer trying to convince a jury that his client did not defame the plaintiff decided the best trial strategy would be to get the opposing counsel drunk, get him behind the wheel of a car, get him busted for a DUI, and then have the video played on the evening news. So, two-part question. First do you endorse this as a trial strategy? Uh, and then secondly, is this a real story or a fake?
1: I do not endorse that as trial strategy. I am <laughs> All right. I am fairly confident that that is also true. Uh, whether or not it was a defamation case, I don't know. But there was definitely some case where some lawyers got in trouble for getting the other counsel drunk at, in trying to get them entrapped that
0: way basically. See, you have a good ear for what is real. This is the Bubba the Love Sponge story out of Tampa, Florida. He's a shock jock that yes. appears on Howard Stern's radio program and yeah, his lawyers from the um the Tiaco law firm, that was their trial strategy and they got busted for it and all three were permanently disbarred that were a yes. part of that. So not not a good trial strategy. All right, last one here, and this one I think you're going to nail. Uh, during a state's bar exam, the testing generals, and whoever the general, you know, I don't want to say the word Nazis, but you get the idea. The people right, who enforced yeah, the, pr- the testing yeah. procedures were so strict that they denied bathroom breaks for the test takers, resulting in... Well, I think you get the idea of what that might result in when you deny people bathroom breaks. Please tell me this is fake because I got this right from your site. Yeah. So I want to know what
1: actually happened and how do you come up with these stories? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the the what what actually happened is yes. Yeah, so, uh, we we it's happened a few times, but one of them uh, it, with the most recent uh, administration of the exam, somebody wrote me to explain that yes, they in fact. Decided that it was – they did the math in their head and it was better for them to urinate themselves than to (gasps) potentially (laughs) fail the exam, uh, which is problematic. Uh, Yeah, no, these – currently because people aren't doing these exams in person in a lot of jurisdictions, they're doing them by computer, and the only way that the bar examiners think that they can avoid cheating – Whereas in, in person, they would send them to the bathroom, but you know, you don't know right. somebody's got notes in the bathroom or something here again, when you're taking it from home. So they basically have said no breaks for anything. Uh, and if we've had people who, uh, you know, have gotten, uh, who've urinated themselves, there have been people who had to quit because of menstruation. Uh, it's just like, it's, it's inhumane the way they're doing it, but here we are. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's bad. Uh, wow. But yeah, so do
0: you have your number? Yeah. Is it, do you have your number two pencil ready? Or right. do you have your depends on because
1: uh, yes. this is going to be a long haul? Yeah, no, I, it really is true. If, you, if you're if you taking the exam under these current conditions, um, depends is not a bad thing to invest in uh, because you're not going to get much of a chance. And the algorithms are like – because everything's on – I mean you've taken bar exam stuff a, a few times at least if I recall from right, right. uh, uh, an la- uh, episode before. Uh, the. You know, you have scratch paper and stuff like that. That's all banned <laughs> right. when they're all um, they're all online. They don't want you to be looking down at paper because they can't see what's on that paper. So you're banned from having any scratch paper. There's no test booklet to fold and make notes on. Uh, it, the whole process is just so much worse than how we always take the took the bar exam.
0: I'm not sure I even understand the purpose of the bar exam because I went to my state's law school, University of Kansas. That mm-hmm. is the state-sanctioned law school. And you would think that graduating from the state-sanctioned law school with a degree might qualify you to practice law in that state. Uh, maybe I'm missing yeah. something there, but should uh, – but nonetheless, they, they take these bar exams.
1: Yeah, no, there's absolutely no good argument for having bar exams at this point. Uh, well, that's not true. There is an argument. It's if you go to a law school that is not accredited, uh, which there are right. a few out there. But but that was the whole point of the bar exam in the first place. It was, it was a creature of the era when – people would apprentice with somebody and you had no idea whether they actually understood what was going on but they'd spent three years apprenticing with john adams and they're going to become a lawyer and so that you would (laughs) have an exam but we don't do that anymore we now require people to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars going to these three-year programs we just need to make sure that those programs have a curriculum that makes you competent at the end and call it a day i mean have the professional responsibility exam because i mean That's worth having. But other than that, I have no idea why you would even have this exam anymore other than, oh, wait, it makes a lot of money for a lot of people.
0: Now, even that professional responsibility exam, I had a beef with that one as well because my take on it was the most ethical answer – isn't the right answer? They want you to know exactly where the line right. is drawn because they want you to barely be ethical enough that you can, uh, you know, know where the line is drawn, the, the the distinction, and then that is the correct answer. But um, yeah, no, I agree That's with you. I'm enough. assuming, yeah, I, I'm assuming big money is involved there somewhere uh, with these these tests. Uh, but nonetheless, I I I do admit I did enjoy taking the bar exams. Yeah. If I could just be a professional bar exam taker now, would you agree with me on this that did you take a Barbary review course? I did. I did. Okay don't they teach you everything you need to know? Now, this did not happen to me, but I'm guessing if I had never went to law school and just went to these barbary review courses, they would teach you all you need to know to practice law. So why do we even need law school?
1: Let's just do the barbary review courses. Well, yeah. And they teach you everything you need to know to pass the test. Uh, And and that's the thing. And you don't learn those things in law schools now because law schools feel, well, if everyone's going to have to go through this other process, we don't have to teach that. I think the stuff that's taught in law Law school, at least in first year, is and, and some questionable value of after that, but it, we'll, we'll leave that to the side. But right, but the the stuff that they're teaching in law school, I think, is valuable. I think in some ways, it's more valuable to how you practice law because it's how you think through problems. But that has nothing to do with the bar exam. The bar exam is the fill in the blank. They dump everything on you. You fill in the blanks. You learn. Oh, this rule applies here and there. It, there's no there's no point. The test doesn't doesn't make, doesn't make test minimum competency to be a lawyer. It tests your ability to have given Barbary uh, your money right. to take a exam a prep course. And I have nothing against exactly. Barbary. I mean, they're filling a need that exists. Because of now, I would much rather a world in which we don't have a bar exam and Barbary can continue to make its money by being like the right. world's best CLE producer or something like that. But they could do something, but this bar exam is just – a tremendous waste. And the organization that runs it, uh, the NCBE who writes all these tests, I mean, their revenue is around $22 million a year. So it, it brings wow. in a lot of money to force everyone to take these tests, and that's why we have them. Uh, usually is
0: the answer. So, all right. Well, let's uh, take that kind of mindset. I want to go over some current events now in the news. Just kind of get your take on mm-hmm. on what's going on. And I'm also fascinated by uh, by these kind of conversations. Just to get different perspectives when it comes to these legal issues. How about my pillow versus the uh, Dominion lawsuit? Uh, yeah. I, I assume you're familiar with that. That was on your website. Uh-huh. Have you ever used a My Pillow product? Do you even know if it's a good product?
1: I have not, I, so I don't know whether it is or not. I feel like pillows are I the sort of either. thing that I've never been—I've um, never been a true connoisseur of. Uh, it's a lot like—it's oh, a, like a coffee that. situation, right? Where I, I don't know the difference <laughs> between good and bad. Uh, I've never really sat down to like go taste test a bunch of pillows. <laughs> you got—you got to change that. I am telling you, it's just so like it. okay. sheets.
0: It's worth the money to spend. 100, 200 bucks. Get a nice down pillow. Mm. It'll be money well spent. You'll use it the rest of your life, and you'll wonder why did I ever use crap before this. But I have no idea if my pillow is down pillows or not. I have no idea. But yeah, this lawsuit is is fascinating to me because. Uh, obviously Dominion filed this lawsuit of defamation against the CEO of MyPillow uh saying that he made some claims in the in the press about how Dominion was engaging in voter fraud uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean you wrote the article is that kind of what this lawsuit is about?
1: Yeah, um so I can't remember if I did or or Our columnist Liz Di did, but I, I one, one of the two of us did, and yeah, the um, no, it's it's an interesting case because obviously this is a corporation who makes its money off of the claims that off of its integrity, right? Like that, that's the only thing it's really selling in a lot of ways is the integrity of the system, and a lot of the claims that he would make are claims that you know there's a track record of not being true, and early on, people made these claims and. The, the evidence came out that that wasn't true and most people backed down off of them. But he just kept doubling down and more to the point right. of the lawsuit, he kept doubling down and turning them into money-making schemes for himself. There were my uh, MyPillow uh, re- rebate tags and stuff like that, like enter right, hashtag right, right. whatever to get your whatever <laughs> off. But if you support, uh, give me money that I will use to fight this sort of thing. And the idea that you're profiting off of this after you have had every opportunity to retract your claims, uh, it put him in a real bind. And I'm interested, I'm interested to see how he gets out, gets around this. Cause most folks who were making those claims early have run, uh, and he's leaned into it. And the question now yeah. is, does he move to dismiss, which is what a, normal person involved in a case like this does or does he follow through on his rhetoric which is that he says this is great now i'll be able to collect discovery and prove all these things if he's right, really right. a b- true believer then he'll do that so i think we'll learn a lot about whether or not he's a real true believer right or wrong or whether he's kind of a grifter uh based on whether or not he moves to dismiss uh because if he though if he really knows he's in trouble he's going to move to dismiss somehow but we'll see
0: if I were his lawyer, and yeah, right. obviously I'm not, nor uh, would I take that case, but nonetheless, <laughs> if I were his lawyer, that would be a nightmare preparing oh, for the deposition. Oh, yeah. I um, mean This guy wants to tell his side of the story. He wants to be as verbose as possible. You alluded to the fact that when he was sued, he was like saying, great, I'm going to double down and say so these guys are really horrible actors. Yeah. And so he didn't sh- run from it. He actually... So yeah, I think deposition is going to be a very fun ordeal. I, I, don't, I don't know if it will get there or not. Uh, surely, calmer minds will... Prevail at some point in time. Now, as far as the legal standard is concerned for our non-lawyer listeners, this is a defamation case against a public entity. So they're going to have to show intent. Uh, that he, he knew the falsity of what he was claiming, and he knew it was false, or with a reckless disregard for the truth mm-hmm. of, truthfulness of the matter. But he made the claims anyways. And so I guess he could defend himself by saying... No, I'm a, I'm a Trumper. I believe what Trump is yeah. saying is the gospel truth, and there are that might be a valid defense. There are people out there that believe what Trump says is the gospel truth, and so I don't know. Is there a kind of an insanity defense to uh, a
1: defamation claim? Yeah, yeah I'm right. Find like, out. yeah, it, it. I mean, that's kind of the thing, and and that is the the fine line, right? You can you can express you feel as though the election was stolen without saying this company is run by the Venezuela, the dead Venezuelan dictator, right? Like <laughs> right, it, it, it's right. the claims that are just, just identifiably false and not said, right, right. and not obviously said said in jest or in parody, which I think you could get away with saying. I, even the Sydney Powell case again that Dominion's brought, there's a, there's at least an argument that when she's giving that press conference about, oh, you know, and this was started by by Hugo Chavez, like that she was really saying, oh, it's Venezuelan, and she was just like pontificating right, and right. making a, a making a parody joke sort of thing she so could argue that and maybe that would be enough but he like he just really doesn't seem to be trying to joke with any of this which yeah not not looking great for him uh yeah if, if he has a good lawyer they're gonna try and convince him to get out of this as quickly as possible but we'll see I assume
0: they'll find some settlement. I mean, no publicity, or no bad publicity, or there is no such thing as bad publicity. And so he is, he's obviously, his sales are are skyrocketing. So he's going to find a way to get out of this case and still appease his base. I do think they're going to have a problem with damages. I I think the experts are going to come in there on both sides and they'll say, look, no, no one has canceled a contract with Dominion. Right. Pretty much everyone knows that what Trump is saying wasn't actually voter fraud uh, because it's just not there. And so if there were canceled contracts uh that dominion can show right uh, or a reduction in sales then that might be something to, to base their claims
1: on but my guess is no one is taking trump seriously i think when that's comes probably the case machines. yeah i think that's but, probably the case I mean, I mean there may be some local um you know i mean i can't imagine there's many deep south jurisdictions that are about to buy dominion after all this and maybe that's a thing right. but but, but yeah. yeah i don't think it's i don't think it's going to end up being anywhere close to 1.3 billion but you know we'll see And and so then I think you're going to see a a
0: settlement at some point in time along the way to get this just to go away quietly. But who knows what these cases? That's why you exist, to cover it Mm -hmm. and let us know how these cases turn out. Speaking of that, so now let's move over to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Mm -hmm. Court is in the news. And so the first pressing matter for me is we need a nickname for ACB. Have you guys given any thought? I know you have a crackpot team there of legal minds, Uh, you know, Everyone has. You need a nickname there on the Supreme Court. I've been calling her the Amazing ACB. Mm-hmm. There's also Chore Chart Amy. I, I kind of like that one. Uh, she's, she's so no, so known for her homeschooling antics with her. How many kids does she have? I, I don't Oh know yeah, to butcher, it's a, about seven or so. Yeah, I it, think it's a bit. I yeah, I just can't imagine that. Uh, any thoughts? I know I just kind of threw that on there uh, to you, but any thoughts on the nickname
1: for for Amy Coney Barrett? Well, we've been rolling with, and I we can't claim credit for it. There was a. a fan of the website who uh, coined this on Twitter, at least as far as we could tell. But uh, we've been rolling with Amy COVID Barrett uh, since she was the <laughs> okay. she was the vector by which the entire White House and extended family all got COVID because um, it was her. Oh, yes. It was her uh, introduction ceremony that was right. wildly unnecessary where they packed everyone in with no masks that resulted in. I had a lot of friends there. Yeah, it resulted that, 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 in. Trump's and the Notre Dame president and Kellyanne Conway and Chris Christie and all of those people getting COVID. So we view her as the typhoid Mary of this situation. So we've been rolling right. with that.
0: I, I totally forgot about that. That did happen at that, at that big press conference. Yep. Oh, my goodness. The Trump days. At some point in time, we're going to look back to those four years and just say, what <laughs> in the world happened? Now, I'm, I'm a conservative. Right. And, and I, I fit within that group, though, is like, I, I, I you just wanted Trump to be out of there mm-hmm. uh, because he's hurting the conservative party oh, yeah. and you just want, you want him gone. I do think there was actually a, a I know it's well, not what we're talking, but there was a certain percentage of Republicans that wanted him impeached. And there was a certain percentage of Democrats that did not want him convicted of impeachment because the Democrats want him to run again <laughs> in, right. in four years. And that's the Republicans' worst nightmares. So
1: I don't know how that's all going to play out. Yeah. It, it's been interesting. I, 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 there's definitely been a fracture to the kind of, post um I right, the 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 conservative fusion movement as i as like it was called of the like the ne- the neocon paleo conservative and uh Rus- you know old russell traditionalist kind of folks that all right, right. came together uh in the 70s to form uh what really became the conservative movement uh, it seems as though the fracture point is here and it's interesting to see like The true believers who like thought, hey, this is what we really believe, and the folks who are just like carrying it wherever it takes them. Because you see, you know, like you're saying, there are folks who are deeply conservative who are coming out and saying, like, whoa, 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 this is not what we were talking about, people. And that's going to be an interesting fissure to try and heal if the, you know, or if it can be. Hey, I've been putting my hat in Nikki Haley's ring. I know we
0: don't know much about Nikki Haley, but we do know she was smart enough to get out of the Trump administration (laughs) when the (laughs) pity was good. good, (laughs) Gotta give her credit for that. But who knows what's gonna play out over the next four years. Which this is a good segue to the next topic, Uh, talking about Supreme Court. Recently, they decided they were not going to shield Donald Trump's tax records, which I know was a big Mm -hmm. litigated point over the last couple of years. And I gotta admit, I have never cared about anyone's tax records, uh, or especially any president's tax records, ever. Until now, I got to know, what what was he hiding? I mean, have you ever thought about that? He has fought tooth and nail. Surely someone four years ago had this conversation. You know what? If we release the tax returns, it's going to be a huge hit. Uh, So we might as well just go ahead and and, uh, keep them back because we would rather take the hit of what people might think of
1: they contain rather than actually knowing what they contain. What do you think is in these tax records? So my my popular theory has always been that the actual problem is that it reveals that he's relatively poor, uh, that he's he's leveraged to no end, that all of this is is a myth based on borrowed money that Deutsche Bank keeps giving him for free and further mortgaging properties. And, And since the entirety of his mythos is that he's super rich, I always thought that when when other people would make the claims like oh this means he's clearly being paid by the russians or whatever i was like i doubt that's it's anywhere near that i think it's just that he's not wealthy or i mean yes. he's he's well off but he's not he's not what he tries to portray himself as and that's why he can't have the taxes come out because they will reveal that in fact he just has a bunch of buildings that are really owned by deutsche bank and he gets a stipend that said I, you know like there the stuff that's come out about like whether or not he uh, that what michael cohen if you believe michael cohen's testimony that a right. lot of what was going on was appraising stuff at super high rates for the purpose keeping two sets of books basically appraising them high right. for the insurance companies while uh while saying that they have basically no value when it comes tax time that does raise the possibility that there maybe were some uh some shenanigans and the charitable foundation stuff is also a little worrisome for him. Uh, If he really was using his foundation more for collecting money and then using it to give salaries to his kids rather than actually do charitable stuff, which has been alleged, that's always, that that, that actually could be a real problem too. So I'm starting now to think that may not just be that he doesn't have a lot of money, but I actually think that even if that were the case, I think that bothers him more than potential criminal liability. I think you've hit
0: the nail on the head. I do believe that um, uh, he likes this idea that he's some kind of billionaire, one of the yeah. richest, smartest people out there. And on his tax returns for umpteen years, it's going to show, no, he's his losses are so great uh, that on the balance sheet, he's not really worth that much. And, and so he did not want that to come out because I think it would hurt his ego. Yeah. That's probably one thing we have learned about Trump is he does have an ego that's Fairly healthy, uh, and so, um, I say healthy, I'm probably overweight, but nonetheless, <laughs> right. it's uh, he's trying to feed that ego, and uh, that's probably what, what's causing it. I have to think, when it comes to the criminal elements, this is just me. But he has great lawyers. I mean, the high, no, the lawyers had pursued his um, his lawsuit defamation claim. No, I'm not talking about those lawyers. The ones that actually did his tax returns. Yeah. Surely he's hiring the best firms there in New York City. Yeah. They know what they're doing. And I would be shocked if there was any criminal thing there, but who knows, right? Yeah,
1: uh, yeah I mean, he, the, his lawyers were Morgan Lewis uh, lawyers, and uh, they – have now cut ties with him, but they're the ones who in theory have been running his taxes this whole time. And yeah, you would assume that a big firm has much more to lose by being caught doing something wrong than if they, you know, do it by the book, but still, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. Uh, How much, how much were they doing? How much were was being done by them versus other folks that, you know, the shenanigans were happening outside of uh, his per, uh, out of their purview, who knows? Uh, But yeah, I,
0: I do have to say, this is now, the spotlight is on the legal community because Mm -hmm. his tax records are going to be released now, but it's going to be released in a confidential manner that they should not ever go to the public. But will they go to the public? Will something get leaked? And then who's going to do the leaking? And I do think the legal community is going to be watched closely now to find out how secret can they actually keep these documents? I know for one, I would not want to be on that grand jury. I I can't keep my mouth
1: shut, but I
0: don't know about you. Would you want to be on that grand jury to get those information, have to keep that
1: secret the rest of your life? Yeah, I mean, there's not going to be, it's not going to be something that's going to be easy for those folks to do. And I do think, ultimately, ultimately, I feel like I, as a lawyer, and as a lawyer, they probably would never want me to be on a grand jury, but I, as a lawyer, would, would feel okay because I understand that you can indict a ham sandwich and that ultimately the indictment is if it goes to a grand jury that will ultimately result in an indictment and that will likely considering right. the gravity of what's being discussed mean that there's no plea deal that gets out of this and no matter how confidential the stuff is at this stage it will eventually end up being in the public record and so i could i could keep my mouth shut knowing that i'm not keeping <laughs> it forever that i would know it would eventually come out and i wouldn't have to be made I, I think
0: you're right, but I do think my wife that night would be saying, uh, Joel, come on, yeah. just, just give me a little bit of a hint, just a, <laughs> just a hint yeah, on right. what was actually there. What was he fighting so hard? Is he worth a buck? I don't know. All
1: right. Lastly here, what is your favorite legal movie? So I, I would go with my cousin, Vinny. Uh, I think that okay. it's, it's not only fun, but it is incredibly accurate. Really? Like if, most of the, there's, there's only like the one, uh, Vordier scene where they do the Vordier of the expert in front of the jury, which obviously is wrong. Right, right. But that's the only like obviously wrong thing, and it's clear that they did that for because it would have been less efficient to move the jury out right. and for a movie. But it, I, I've always been very impressed with how good that one is in a world in which our courtroom dramas take tons of liberties. They tried their very best to be as realistic as possible. And come on,
0: marissa Tomei
1: is oh, the star of that. Fantastic. So, yeah, is. It definitely is my
0: favorite legal movie. Uh, that definitely is a question where there was a right or wrong answer, and once again, you <laughs> nailed it. Uh, Judge Posner said the same thing you said, which is, "Yeah, this is a great movie for teaching because yeah. it has all kinds of great examples for lawyers to follow when it comes to researching the matter, you know, uh, impeaching witnesses, uh, things like that." So. Yeah, some people will say legally blonde. Some will mm-hmm. throw in a um, to kill a mockingbird, which I say, How did you get on my podcast? Yeah. That's how you feel about to kill a mockingbird. But nonetheless, hey, thank you so much for agreeing to be on. I do love your articles uh, on <laughs> Above the Law. Yep. I got to admit, I saw your and I thought Atlanta. What are do you doing with Atlanta? I know,
1: well, the, that was, the, the website existed <laughs> before I got there. I would have probably pointed out, you know, the rest of the world sees that as Atlanta, right? But here we are. <laughs>
0: Hey, good. I'm glad you saw that, too. So, all right. Thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, I'll continue reading your stuff, your material. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our vice president of operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do, Brooke Bolin for spreading the good word about us, and Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Triplicity Marketing for our technical and computer support.